0: This episode of the Aquarius Podcast is sponsored by Aquarium Co-op and their amazing all-in-one fertilizer, Easy Green. If you're like me and love planted tanks but weren't born with an aquatic green thumb, Easy Green is the stuff for you. Easy Green is super easy to dose and I use it in all of my planted tanks, both high and low-tech setups. I follow the instructions on the bottle and the results are healthy, vibrant plants. I know so many other aquarists who swear by Easy Green and their tanks look amazing. You can even go back to previous episodes of this podcast where you hear several guests talk about their experience and love for this stuff. So head on over to aquariumcoop.com, drop some Easy Green in your cart and use the code Aquaris5 at checkout to receive 5% off your order. And if you needed it, Corey has numerous videos on the Aquarium Co-op YouTube channel where he talks all about Easy Green, how to use it, and shows off his own tanks at home and in the store that are thriving on the stuff. Lastly, if you're enjoying the podcast, share the show with your friends leave a rating wherever you listen to the episodes and subscribe to the youtube channel now on to the interview today's date is saturday october 20th 2018. my guest today is rat cross and this is a special episode we are Uh, live at the Aquatic Experience 2018 in Secaucus, New Jersey. And we're actually in my hotel room at the Embassy Suites by Hilton, a wonderful establishment, beautiful lobby. uh, And I've tricked this fine gentleman into coming into my room, a complete stranger, and he's actually drinking a drink that I poured him. So, hey. You know, he trusts me. And uh, we're going to talk about... uh, Randy, this
1: is the (laughs) nicest studio I've ever been invited to. (laughs) You're you're welcome. Actually, we
0: are using a new recorder. So, you know, I did invest back, you know, I'm investing back into the show and I've got a nice new recorder that you're talking into. So this is kind of an on the road mobile studio. And I don't get to do in-person interviews very often. Uh, The nice thing is we're not in a fish room right now. So there's hopefully, you know, really good, uh, you know, no background noise. No air bubbles, right? You don't hear hear the bubbler. So hopefully my post-production editing, it's not going to be. Uh, Too intense, but but Mr. Rat Cross, I completely forgot to hit you with the uh, with the bio. So so listeners, uh, Mr. Rat Cross, he's uh, the VP of the Tennessee Ornithological Society. He's been a chairman of the International Amphibian Days. He is the founding president of a local nature club in his area. He's from the beautiful uh, part of the country, the East Tennessee Mountains. Right? Correct that that general region. Okay, Um, so. I've seen pictures, absolutely beautiful and astounding, and there's some really cool, um, you know, native fish and native birds and, and all sorts of other critters that live in that area. So very cool to have. Uh, Rack on. He's also got a, uh, a you know a, a fledgling, dare I say, and don't take that in the wrong way, a no, YouTube channel correct. called the River Life, and we'll definitely make sure we get a chance at the end of this to to give Rack an opportunity to kind of talk about what that is um, as we wrap up this interview.
1: But uh, let's go ahead and go back and talk about uh, first off aquatic experience, man. What do you what are you thinking? This is crazy. It's overwhelming. I mean, so many people, so many things going on. I love the uh, aquascaping the competition that's going on. Every time I walk by there, it's a different view of beautiful aquariums being scaped. So it's wonderful to see the people. Fantastic to meet you here in person, Randy. I enjoy what you're doing. And I guess our paths intersected when you interviewed Corey McElroy of Aquarium Co-op. Yes. I've, I've, heard, I've
0: heard of him. <laughs> well, and I've, I've heard of this story. Because
1: of him, I heard of you and now I'm a fan of yours. So thank you very much for inviting me on your show. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's an absolute pleasure. And you
0: know, doing weekly uh, weekly interviews. It's it's fun to be able to, you know, have a lightweight kind of um, media outlet where it's very easy to meet people and just say, hey, tell me your story. Let's bring it to right. the audience and let, let, you know, let hobbyists and other fish nerds or, you know, as, as people will hear in this conversation, kind of amphibian nerds. Right. Um, Here, you know, just two people geek out on a topic. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm always on the lookout for people. And so thank you very much for, for uh, coming absolutely.
1: on. It's a great time for me. Yeah.
0: And so Aquatic Experience, this is your
1: 2nd Second. This is yeah, your I second. went to Chicago last okay. year. This yeah. is
0: my first. It's an absolutely fantastic event. Um, you know, really is. We actually we broke away for a little bit. It's lunchtime right now on day two, so it's Saturday. Um, you know, We're going to do maybe a 30-minute interview, and then mm-hmm. Rack and I are both going to head back and, and have some good times. And maybe there's a second victim I can convince to come <laughs> up here. But, you know, hey, it's uh, I'd be remiss to, to not take up an opportunity to interview somebody here at the Aquatic Experience. Just the, the buzz is in the air, and I would really encourage everybody out there. Um, to, you know, Aquatic Experience 2019, the shrimp competition, the aquascaping, the vendors, seeing all the new products, Uh, meeting maybe your favorite YouTuber. Uh, It's such a cool event. If you are a nerd, I mean, first off, you're a nerd because you're listening to this podcast. (laughs) And so when you're in that vein, you should also try to come to this event. Really cool. I'm pretty sure it will be here in Secaucus, New Jersey again next year. That's true. You know, who knows how many years it will be here and then maybe move to a different venue. But again, I would strongly encourage. It's an absolute blast. Check out
1: all the social media postings. uh, Well, you know, speaking of that, Randy, it's been a leap year forward for social media and the aquatic experience. Experience, the host organization, World Pet Association, donated this year three booth spaces to YouTubers. And last year, the YouTubers they weren't on the agenda. They we weren't even on the map. But they saw all the hype videos and the live streams and the videos that came out afterward. And this year, they extended like a red carpet welcoming. Yeah, yeah. yeah so well, they're smart. They're smart.
0: I think know? so. Let's Definitely. let's
1: continue to grow with support. Let's continue to grow the the effort to welcome social media at large events. Yeah,
0: absolutely. All right, Rex, so enough about everybody else, man. Let's focus right, on right. you. This is your this is your 30 minutes that I'm focused in on you, my man. I want to give you all the attention. So give me your, your tropical fish keeping background. When
1: did you first start keeping tanks? That's a great question. Uh, my earliest childhood memory of pet keeping involved a guppy bowl. And my mom had a collection, a small colony of wild guppies, and she loved them. And I was fascinated as a kid, three, four-year-old, watching my mom take the mom guppy out of the bowl and putting it into a jar and watching the fry drop. I knew it was something special, you know, to occupy my mom's full attention that way. Yeah. So, so there, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but there sure. it is again, man. Somebody
0: gets their passion, gets their start with guppies and mm-hmm. watching guppies reproduce, man. That is just, you know, time and time again, that is a... a you know such a, a constant in this hobby and if you're somebody myself included that wants to get a younger generation involved those live bears there and that go. magic of creation and birth
1: I agree. Like, continue my man and i'm not over it i mean i've kept an aquarium and fish nearly my entire life i took a break while i was in the army they wouldn't let me bring my aquarium and, <laughs> and a college dorm or two you know no fish allowed but other than that fish have always been a constant mm-hmm. in my life and i still love guppies yeah yeah, so that's cool. And then, the, you know, the guppy colony grew. the The fish bowl got bigger, and that eventually became something I was interested in. And for my eighth birthday, I got my first ten gallon aquarium, uh, incredibly overstocked ten gallon community tank. Of course, <laughs> but it came with uh, some some education opportunity. My mother also bought some some books. I loved to read, so uh, I was just I was into fish. I was always going to be a fish keeper, and I loved it. But it also spawned an appreciation for nature in general. Mm-hmm. So there was a creek in my neighborhood, and if I weren't at home and weather permitting, I was in the creek, and I was turning over rocks looking for crustaceans and salamanders and fish. Nice. So, d- and yeah. did you bring any home, and did you set up any like terrariums or bowls or anything for those critters? Uh, not well, but <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't actually get a, a nature appreciation mentor, so I was kind of doing some things just that a kid would do. I remember going on a salamander collecting trip once and um, putting the salamanders I had captured in a jar. And uh, you know how kids are. We don't really keep our schedule. This was pre-smartphone days. And uh, baseball practice snuck up on me, and I forgot and left the jar of salamanders in my dad's car. Oh, no. He was a, a, a salesman and traveled and noticed the next day an odor in the car. <laughs> oh, poor thing. Yes. So and no. so I, I, yeah, so I didn't do well with the salamanders. That And then my dad became not a fan of salamanders, Yeah, so it was difficult to keep, and I just learned to better appreciate them in nature, yeah. leave them in situ. Yeah, and
0: now to go back, were you born and raised in East Tennessee?
1: Um, Southwest Virginia, okay. East Tennessee, always okay. there in the in the mountain, Southern Appalachians. Can, can you go
0: back in the in the Wayback Time Machine, close your eyes, and kind of tell me what the fish stores were like back then, like selection-wise? Um, was it, you know, was it something that from a price point perspective, things were, were expensive relative to now? Like, what what do you remember of your experiences? As a- uh,
1: tropical fish, um, seem to be more expensive. They seem to be more accessible now. One of the things I remember is that we upgraded my 10 gallon tank to a 29 gallon tank and bought one of the first hang on back filters. It was a Dynaflow filter. And this thing had like 70 parts and it was two days to clean. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> but it was automatic. You know, okay, we we're, yeah, we're, yeah. we're doing the hang-on-back thing, and that was a really it was a really cool thing to have, and it was super expensive. Yeah. So now to have the hang-on-back technology that we're kind of over, you know, but it's very inexpensive. Every starter kit comes with a hang-on-back. It's fun to remember, yeah. you know, hey, wow, that was the technology at the time. And yeah. it, it replaced, I guess, the uh, – the floss box filter mm-hmm. the air filter that sat in the corner and wasn't very decorative mm-hmm. but there's a lot of people going back to that though there's because a lot it's of, so effective yeah yeah that's yeah. i know
0: greg sage um select aquatics yes. was a guest on this show he's um very very you know high on the on the box filters and his take being that you know, you put your media in there, your filter floss, whatever it may be, and you can actually watch as it needs to be changed. Where uh, mm-hmm. the other black sponge filters, you know, very good filtration, very efficient, but you don't really know when they need mm-hmm. to be changed. And, you know, maybe you never clean. Uh, and when I
1: say changed, I mean uh, maintenance and cleaned. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, box filters, are, you know. Well, I think there's some human nature involved there. Our, we want what we don't have, and that drives the market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Yeah. How, yeah, well, how many times do vintage items in any genre yeah. come back with a bang? One
0: of the things I want to do is is go back and compare the price of the glass aquariums, you know, back then, mm-hmm. um, to like the dollar a gallon sale at Petco. Mm-hmm. And you know, oh, is, crazy. It, it, did we have any sales back then that even compared to the dollar a gallon sale that Petco? And not that use? I'm
1: aware of. You know, we were buying the MetaFrame steel frame aquariums. You're mm-hmm. you're buying a heavy duty unit, slate mm-hmm. bottoms, and I. Uh, it was not an inexpensive opportunity. Yeah. So, but I think I I may have been motivated to take better care of my first aquarium, knowing that my parents had sacrificed so that I could enjoy it. Yeah. It,
0: it almost yeah. you know
1: you're you're almost in the
0: furniture price point, right? Where I like, think this so. This is this is a significant investment. Where mm-hmm. now we just kind of. Yeah, I'm drilling overflows uh, in my right. for my fish room right now, and I you know busted two ten <laughs> gallons, and I was honestly more upset that they were already painted ten gallons, right? So I, I love doing black um, black bottoms, black tops, black or black sides, sure. black backs, and so I was more upset that it, it was the time that I invested right. to paint those tanks as opposed to the ten bucks that each one yeah, costs, nearly disposable. Right? Yeah. So yeah, I mean we I I, I would assume then we've come a long way as far as accessibility into the hobby and price point, um,
1: so. Which is great for the consumer and the
0: hobby, oh, yeah. I think. Yeah. 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 I mean, the, yeah, the more accessible, the more people that are going to be able to enter. Exactly. Um, so what is your what is your progression through the hobby look like then? So you started with kind of, you know, your, your guppies, and then you got a community mm-hmm. tank. Was there anything in particular that you remember in the community tank that was like an outstanding favorite of yours? And did you kind of go through waves in the hobby of, you know, I'm a cichlid guy right now, and I'm all
1: about angelfish, and then all of a mm-hmm. sudden you switched over to, to bettas, or do you have any kind of... So, yeah, like so the, the angelfish were not common. When you saw an angelfish, it was a wow, show-stopping fish, and they were very expensive. So after I'd upgraded my 10-gallon aquarium, I wanted angelfish, and I bought two dime-sized baby angelfish. I guess. I just said angelfish, too, and yeah. it happened to be right on the money, it's man. That, you nailed oh, it. Right. excellent. And they, these things <laughs> grew, you know, to yeah. six, seven-inch fish, and but I couldn't stay out of that creek, you know. And so I would go down there, and I would catch different types of minnows and suckers, and I would bring them back and temporarily introduce them to the community tank.
0: And how did that work out?
1: So they're more of a cold-water fish. Right. So I I would leave them in there for observation, and then I would recognize maybe a little bit of stress, and I would take them back to the creek and release them. But I never had any water quality issues or parasite issues, although that could have easily happened. And right. I don't recommend anyone try this. <laughs> yeah, it's my curiosity on that, yeah. <laughs> but I was just a kid enjoying nature, you know, and that's that's what I did. And it was, it was pretty phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then my, but my costumus grew, you know, also from three inches to nine inches or whatever. And then I didn't need to go to the creek for the game fish anymore. (laughs) There you go. So, uh, so let's fast
0: forward now. What does your current fish aquarium setup look like?
1: Yeah. So I was not doing fish for a while other than little hobby bowls. I, I do some artwork and I did a show involving goldfish bowls and live goldfish. And, Um, didn't, didn't have a large aquarium at home, but I started a YouTube channel after I retired from uh, my career and decided that I wanted to do, um, fish keeping content Mm -hmm. basically because I'd seen a couple of YouTube channels where I really appreciated the creator's take on the hobby and the community. So... I wanted to be a part of this community that was growing, something I could give back to and I could receive from. We have family to share with. And then so many avenues of instruction and opportunity, like your podcast, it's like, hey, we're going to get the nerds together. We're going to talk about things we like to talk about, and everybody's going to have a takeaway. Yep. So I believe, my personal philosophy is everyone has something. And if we just take a minute to listen to someone's story and find out what that is, and the fishkeeping community... Is really good about allowing everyone to bring their something, put it on a a buffet of options, if you will, and then coaching each other. Hey, you know, if you don't want that, just leave it alone. You don't have to spit on it. It may be what the next guy wants. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's an overwhelming sense of what we call the hashtag fish fam yeah and we're seeing a lot of that with the uh, aquatic experience youtube booth going on right now Yeah, there, there, there's
0: a big you know kind of different strokes for different folks i think every once in a while you will get some bad apples that you know like to poo to poo and hate on things but mm-hmm. you know something like a like a bitecher, you know i it i can appreciate that fish i'll probably never have a tank that has them right but that's a, that's a cool fish man and if somebody you know if that's your your passion thing or something you like to keep by all means yeah. and you know, talking with Shelby Bush from Seagrass Farms, I was blown away that people would keep sturgeon. Yes. And there's a there's a, actually a sturgeon display tank that Aquatic Experience has that's set up. Striking. And it's it's like their prehistoric tank. Mm-hmm. And those suckers are super active, man. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, man, looking at this thing, that's I could, I could definitely see the appeal in that. I right. would never keep them, but I can I can appreciate, um, you know, the, the unique coolness that that fish brings to the hobby and the joy, right? The joy in I fish I like keeping. what you're saying there. Yeah.
1: And we, we just give each other room. To be each other. You be yeah. you. Tank your tank. Most and, of the time we do. And and then we can also <laughs> offer some coaching when asked. You know, yeah. here here's some best practices yeah. I'm aware of for your consideration. Yeah. So what are your tanks like at home right now? Yeah, so I started the YouTube channel and I went, um, I started three small tanks. You know, I uh, uh, had a Scarlet Battis and a Betta and, an, and another small container fish. And my wife came home and didn't yell at me. Um, She said, you had a good day today, didn't you, honey? What what, what size tanks are these? (laughs) Oh, two or three gallon. Okay. Yeah. And and I said, yeah. And I set them up in the foyer of the home and, you know, kind of a neat, artistic looking, cool display. Mm -hmm. And I was working it to get a reaction. It went over okay. And I'm like, I think I want to get an aquarium. And so that was just like um, multi-tank syndrome. There you go. (laughs) Ready to pop. And so... um, I started buying tanks, watching Corey, Corey's videos over there at Aquarium Co-op. He made it look so easy. So I'm building racks and filling them up, and I escalated to about 24 aquariums in a portion of the house. we just turned into a fish room. Excellent. Let's, yeah. So let, let's talk about those 24 aquariums. Yeah. Um, what, what, typically what size? What do you have? Oh, they ranged. Okay. I, I kept a five-and-a-half-gallon for, for the betta. And then a forty-gallon glass tank was the largest. I had a seventy-five-gallon stock tank. I put some baby koi mm-hmm. in. You know, a couple of twenty-gallon longs. Um, also a big fan of Flip Aquatics, and I'd bought some shrimp from Rob at Flip Aquatics. And I, I you know, I hate to say this, I love them to death. I fell in love also with Malaysian driftwood, and come to find out, if you overstock your tank with Malaysian driftwood, you can um, you can escalate some parameters you really don't want to escalate. Uh-oh. Yeah. So now that's a beautiful rabbit snail tank. So tell you what, you you uh,
0: bat, package those rabbit snails up, and you send yeah. them to me because I've got my <laughs> Shodentai puffer Poe that uh, he, he's making me, I'm going to have to ramp up in the fish room once it gets fully up and running and, and dedicate maybe two tanks to snail production because Poe is a, is a fatty.
1: That's an awesome puffer to have. He's amazing, man. Yeah. I, I
0: can't recommend
1: those fish enough. and it's, I, It I seems actually, like they're becoming more and more available, too. Uh, and they should be. They're a great h- fish for the hobby. I actually received a couple of the pea puffers by mistake. I ordered a pair of guppies online, and they shipped the wrong box to my address, and it had pea puffers in it. So uh, I kept those guys for a while, and they ate me out of snails yeah. Yeah, while I had them. But they had a lot of personality. I enjoyed keeping the puffers.
0: Yeah. Let, let, let's talk about the shrimp, right? So what yeah. has surprised you the most um,
1: with keeping shrimp? So the, the shrimp require a little bit of effort. Like I had a bulletproof aquarium system where I would overload it with plants, and that would just kind of help me to stay within, you know, a, a balance, even if I made some mistakes or was lazy on the maintenance. The shrimp, their parameters were a little more exacting. So I thought I was doing everything. I had the setup, I had the maintenance, but I didn't count on the decor changing the parameters mm-hmm. and them being sensitive to it. But uh, you know, I'm, I'm kept poison dart frogs for years, and I thought the shrimp are very similar. Now they'll do very well if if you know a few of these particulars, you're going to have a great experience with mm-hmm. shrimp. And I'm going to go back into shrimp. I'm talking to Rob here this weekend. I'm going to give it another go. He's promised to be my my coach, my better conscience. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do those uh, those shrimp one more time uh, and. Even if, it, if I have to, I'm an artist, as I mentioned, if I have to sacrifice the aesthetics, I'm going to do what's right for the shrimp, and I'm going to, I'm going to enjoy them. But I tell you, one of the things that surprises me is how popular they are. I talked to Chris Lukop, the shrimp king is here. He's mm-hmm. running the shrimp contest, the International Shrimp Contest. It's grown since last year. Big question, Mark, we're moving this major convention. Are the people going to show up in New Jersey? Well, the shrimp contest just went ahead and grew the shrimpers they don't care where you're going we're yeah. here and we're growing yeah and I,
0: i've shared the anecdote that's on my bus ride over from manhattan to secaucus new jersey real quick bus ride um but I, I had no idea where i was going i've never been in this area before and so the bus driver i was like you know is this the correct bus that i should be on he's like oh yeah are you going to the aquatic fish thing i'm like well
1: <laughs> actually <laughs> wow. yeah.
0: yes i am wow um and he's like oh are they gonna have shrimp and bettas there and i'm like well they will. They will, and I'm pretty sure there will be a bunch for sale. And he's like, "Oh, great!" And so this is somebody that you know had the this experience, not moved. To a different location, mm-hmm. you know, individuals like that, right? Right. You know, kind of, maybe they don't have full-on multiple tank syndrome, but they're mm-hmm. they're an, an aquarist in their own right, wouldn't have a chance to experience this awesome event. So that's just a fun anecdote that I've shared that even my bus that's driver, good. yeah. you know, was jazzed about this event. And I'm sure he's probably here today with his family walking around and mm-hmm. hopefully they pick up some some shrimp oh. and some... It's all about the aquarium. I don't and, care where you go. Yeah. So let, let's pivot now. And we're going to go in a little bit of a different direction. We're not going to talk about saltwater. We're going to talk about uh, dart frogs. Oh yeah, yeah. And yeah. I don't, I don't keep dart frogs. I'm, I'm even scared to talk to you about this because I don't want to <laughs> get, I don't want to get hyped up and go down that rabbit hole. But I think careful. <laughs> I, I, th- I think it's a very. Um, easy bridge and transition for people that have an aquarium to also keep dart frogs i've talked Mm -hmm. to a number of people here that actually also have dart frogs they have the paludariums or whatever type of enclosure and they they have this fond passion for dart frogs Mm -hmm. so we're going to have a little mini dart frog conversation i'm going to ask you a lot of beginner basic you know for for an advanced dart frog person they're going to say you're a noob well, that's fine. Absolutely. Full disclaimer. Yeah. Full disclaimer. Everybody knows that listens to this.
1: You know, I don't have all the answers. And yeah. um, so. Well, truth in advertising. I don't have any dart frogs currently. I haven't kept dart frogs since 2000. But you have some serious chops, Absolutely. though. Absolutely. Okay, yeah. So I, like, I, I talked to some really smart people, just like we're doing yeah. here. We're networking with all the speakers and so forth. Yeah. So let, yeah.
0: Let, let's give a quick um, overview. Let's, let's fly by how
1: you got started in keeping dart frogs. It's total um, eye candy. And you see a picture of a dart frog, and it's like, wow, that is awesome. I like to have that in a, in a nice-looking terrarium. And so I um, started doing some research and found that uh, there was a, a, a an eye surgeon in the area that had in his his lobby a terrarium that had dart frogs in it. And so um, I gave his office a call. He was kind enough to give me a call back, and he said, yeah, I'm going um, going up to Baltimore, and there's going to be a reptile show with some vendors with dart frogs. If you want me to get you some, I'm going to pick up some more. I'll be happy to pick you up some. And I said, well, I don't know if I can care for them properly or not. I'm kind of new on the learning curve. And he said, I'll I'll help you, and you can I'll I'll get a couple of frogs for you can keep in a ten gallon aquarium. So being a fish guy, I'm like I'm set. I, yeah, bring those frogs down here. So that that was the beginning. And what year was this? That would have been late 90s. Okay. 96 97. Okay.
0: And so, yeah. I mean, what were those first dart frogs? What, you know, what were your lessons learned? Like kind of walk me through a high level of that experience
1: with that first. Fortunately set. for me, the the frog that I found the prettiest uh, was one of the easiest to care for. And uh, that being the Dendrobates azureus. Okay which now is a, we found out that it's not its own species, it's just a subspecies of the Dendrobates tinctorius. Okay. Azuria subspecies, and it's the solid blue frog with black spots on its back. Uh, What we would consider one of the larger terrestrial type frogs versus the smaller arboreal ones. Okay, and so let's
0: go ahead and right now have the, um, Randy's gonna ask you a silly question, and you're gonna give me the educated answer. Why would I wanna keep something that is poisonous and can make me sick?
1: Awesome question. These frogs um, are typically captive bred, not wild imports. And in the pet trade, at least in my state, it's illegal to have a venomous reptile or amphibian. So they're all captive bred in Tennessee. And what does that mean? That means they haven't been exposed to the wild diet, which changes their metabolism and the way that they, um, they, they chemically process their food into the mucus on their back that helps them breathe so they're not poisonous, but they're still an amphibian. I wouldn't recommend anyone handle an amphibian and then wipe their eyes, you know, or, or put the frog in their mouth for whatever reason. Yeah. So just any standard native North American amphibian, toad, sure. uh,
0: frog, it's same kind of handling practices, right? Yeah. Okay. And so I've asked that question to some
1: other dart frog people and they're like, well, you don't want you don't go around handling your fish. And I That's say, tou- true. Touche. Yeah, they're, they're more for observation than handling. And when I would move my frogs, I would do it with clear tubes, not fingers. And if it were necessary, I'd put on a glove and make sure it was very wet. And why do you do the clear tube? What is does, it, does so, it keep it in place or what? Yeah, it was so someone figured this out. I don't know if it was trial and error or what. But if you will hold the, the a, a tube over a frog, it naturally wants to to climb. The dendrobates uh, Latin name that's kind of like a tree or woody climber. They're a tree frog so instead of hopping away usually they just climb up the tube and then they would they'd be still you could move them from one and then lay the tube down they'd crawl out when they wanted to excellent yeah and
0: and so what were uh, i mean what were some of the other observations or things that kind of surprised you surprised you about keeping
1: the dart frogs that they developed personality you know how fish worship the food god they get in the habit of seeing this guy with the food coming down They just come up to the tank check you out frogs did the same thing it was crazy and uh, they'd kind of circle up. They all wanted a little elbow room at the table. So they'd, they'd have a little uh, powwow in the center of the moss and the terrarium that you're keeping them in. Then you drop in the fruit flies, which is the staple food. And then they would just you could hear them snap when they would put their tongue out to grab the uh, fruit fly and then retract it into their mouth very quickly. Mm-hmm. So very social. And uh, they were good in a group together, kind of like a school of fish. A group of frogs were really cool to watch. And so, you know, now you've you've
0: developed this passion, you've had this experience. So then, how does it progress for you then to the point where, um, you know, you're the
1: chairman of International Amphibian Day and all the oh, that? No, that was a total that was a total farce. So uh, I love frogs. I'm very passionate about frogs, and I networked with all the people. I wanted the good information, had the good conversations, met the right people, and there were people far more qualified to be chairman of International Amphibian Day than I was, but. Probably no more passionate. And so, we, on, on the board that, that I chaired, we had people from uh, US State Department, Smithsonian, National Aquarium, um, US Fish and Wildlife, USGS, just a high powered National uh, Park Service, people that cared about amphibians. And we had a project. We wanted to, uh, there was a pretty serious disease cropping up in the wild and in uh, collections called chytrid. And we we put all of our resources toward that, figured out what it was, how to stop it, how to correct it so it didn't wipe out our collections. That was our contribution, you know, to uh, amphibian keeping. And what we did that I think was very smart And how I got involved is we invited the hobbyist in. And we said, hey, hobbyist, how are you doing this? And talk about a, a radical group of hobbyists. Poison dart frogs, 20 years ago, you know, this was an anomaly. How in the world do you get poison dart frogs into the United States if you're not a zoo? So these hardcore hobbyists that had poison dart frogs had figured something out because you only keep a dart frog wrong for a little while. And these hobbyists were keeping them generation after generation. Come to find out the hobbyists had figured out some caretaking tips that were adopted after International Amphibian Days and we started doing behind the scene tours of national collections. They started adopting techniques that the hobbyists were using, and then educating the hobbyists on why this is working. So, what are some of those um, you know things that, that we learned that we
0: shared that were yeah, to make so, a successful star frog uh, keeper?
1: Yeah, uh, excellent question, and and that plays right into the very simple setup that works. Rather than if you go to the uh, natural habitat, the biome, you see a frog. It's jumping around in the leaf litter on the ground. So you go home, you make a terrarium with dirt and leaf litter on it. But leaves matter, though. So what kind of leaves?
0: Um, At least in the aquariums, the type of leaf that you put in there for tannins matter, right? So
1: um, not so much. Not it, so much for the well, frogs? Well, if you're going to use leaves, you people usually go to the ones that's going to last longer, that don't break down as quickly because of a very moist environment. So... Uh, where I'm from, the magnolia leaf was awesome. Okay. It was a heavy, waxy leaf. The frogs liked it. It would hold water if it were turned the right way. Good for the humidity. They could even use it as an egg laying. Anyway, but, but what the zoos were doing, they were recreating exactly the environment the frogs came from, but in captivity, the frogs weren't doing well. The, um, when you put that dirt and that leaf litter in an aquarium and then you keep it saturated, you get all kinds of growth that you don't want that are harmful to the frogs. And what the hobbyists had figured out is they would elevate with a false bottom, a moss bed, uh, usually a sphagnum moss, a, a wet type of moss, and then let the water pass through so that the moss was keeping the humidity up, but it wasn't standing water on dirt. And as that water passed through, that was the maintenance. You'd eventually have to drain some water. After misting very important so 10 gallon aquarium false bottom moss sphagnum moss and um, we used a hand pump that was common when kerosene heaters were used and you'd transfer your kerosene from the container you took to the store to your home unit and we'd have one for aquarium to prevent cross-contamination jab that thing in a corner pump out some water and you're good to go for two weeks so that was the specialty equipment and that was it And so the zoos saw this and they said, really, this is what you're doing? That's what I'm doing. And I'm getting, the frogs are laying every seven to 10 days eggs. And so what does the rest of the tank look like because we see um you know
0: we always see these beautiful paludariums and terrariums that have these wonderful orchid walls is that is that critical that is not critical but it is beautiful because that's intimidating right yeah i think so like when you you see those it's like man that is amazing i could never do that (laughs) i could never do i yes that is a true statement randy is not equipped to build that that looks expensive
1: and i'm not gonna throw that kind of money away yeah so this 10 gallon very very inexpensive you could put a bromeliad, okay, that's the type of plant that's very common in the rainforest It grows epiphytically on other plants, so it doesn't draw any nutrients. It's not a parasite, it's an epiphyte. And it is very waxy and holds water in the cups of the leaves. So this is important in the, in the dart frog world, so they can get wet if they want to, lay eggs in standing water. But it's not necessary, You could use uh, one of the most prolific breeders of dart frogs that I ever met used a Cool Whip plastic tub turned upside down with a little doorway cut in it for the frogs to go in. It's a little hiding place on top of moss and then a plastic lid with whatever light was available. This that simple. And uh, I guess uh, one thing that I haven't explained is the false bottom covers 80% of the bottom. And then a, I use the material that I think is common in, in cross stitching. It's a it's a perforated uh, plastic sheet that sets on top of the false bottom and then dips down to the floor of the aquarium for that other 20% with a rock on top of it to keep it in place. So there's standing water, standing water on the end of the aquarium. And that that's it. And then you can make it as as pretty as or ornate as you'd like. Interesting. Uh, so, yeah.
0: So so very very simple setup to be very inexpensive.
1: Inexpensive. Now,
0: yeah. um, yeah, for as far as the top goes, um, screen top or are we doing a solid solid top to keep the humidity in? That's it? right. Okay. The solid
1: top. I was buying um, sheets that go in uh, to cover fluorescent lights and just cutting them to size. Okay. Yeah, and then I would lift that and spray. I'd use a little uh, hand pump power sprayer to spray the aquarium down, mm-hmm. and that, that's not even necessary. It's recommended, especially if you want to breed the frogs.
0: So, so let's say somebody ends up being successful, right? Um, mm-hmm. What is an outlet for the frogs? So I guess my first question would be, what's kind of the max, you know, uh, inch of fish per gallon? What's like kind of the dart frog rule? How many of them can I have in a ten gallon? And then once they start you know, being successful in making babies, like what's a good outlet for dart frogs? Like? You, know, you
1: know, there's so many questions when, when you look at your process, how you're going to do it. I never kept more than a trio of adults in a, in a 10 gallon aquarium for the purpose of breeding. And then I usually would cut that back to a pair. I would figure out what, who the pair was and then remove, you know, the third wheel. And I would draw eggs every seven to 10 days in a Petri dish and just stack the Petri dishes. And then as the eggs would hatch, I'd move the tadpoles into a, a shoebox-sized stir container. Mm-hmm. And I used to do a lot of water maintenance on those until I figured out if you'll use um, leaf litter and just let the, waters, let the water get tan and rich The frogs, all you have to do is add water and feed and put some springtails in there, you know, and some fish flake food. Not much. And then a- as the tadpoles develop take them out and put them into another aquarium i use a 20 gallon long and the frogs come out of course much smaller than the adults okay so they don't need as much space A 20 gallon long with the false bottom like we've described the baby frogs oh gosh you could keep 50 in there but i had at the time dart frogs non-existent i was shipping you know 50 at a time how many do you have i want them all And um, a lot of them then were going to educational institutions and zoos. So now I think any uh, pet store would be interested in, in having frogs. Back in 2000, we were very leery of selling to local pet stores because we didn't think that the education was there for the frogs to have good care when they left the store. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but I think that's changing now. And, you know, I noticed here at the aquarium experience that so many of the displays, the most beautiful displays, involve not just a box of water, but marginal plants growing above the surface of the water and even living walls behind the aquarium kind of, you know, saying, hey, maybe the industry is going toward this vivarium, terrarium, paludarium, you know, that's that make the whole ecosystem. You know, instead of just the aquatic life. Yeah, I mean they're they're amazing, right? These these setups are well. Just I'm sure your listeners astounding. are familiar with ADA. Yeah. And the ADA exhibit, which is really unbelievable, uh, it, it's fascinating. Two of the three display tanks that they have running include living walls of above surface plants. No, hold on. AGA. No, ADA. Oh, who's ADA? Well, that's the uh, Amano design. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, yes, 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 Amano. Yes, yeah. yes, 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 yes. Yeah. The,
0: the boutique, yep. you know. No, their setup is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. I, I was there's so many acronyms of clubs. And AGA and, yeah. just happens to be the yeah. booth
1: next door. Yeah, I can yep. see. Yep. Where Every, I everybody looking. has
0: a, a three or four letter letter acronym, and I was like, <laughs> I think you mean AGA, American uh, the Aquatic Gardeners Association. Yeah. Uh, but no, yes, ADA. Uh, Excellent, excellent. And that's, once again, if you come to the Aquatic Experience, you can see their setup and just the amazing um, setups that they have and products that they sell. So now I guess going back to the 10-gallon, if I don't want to breed can I have like five or six poison dart
1: frogs and then they would just kind of predate on the eggs and, and be okay in a group? Or? I probably wouldn't recommend that many. I mean, once, once you see the size and the scale of a full-grown terrestrial poison dart frog, you can see where five would be crowded. Oh, okay. Yeah. Although I don't think the frogs would mind if they're well-fed and you know, you're keeping the water parameters okay, which fish keepers are the best dart frog keepers they're already aware of, hey, maybe I could in- improve the water. But if you'll do the, the moss as the mist that you're misting every day passes through the moss, man, it does a lot of water correction. Mm-hmm. And then we also learn to use pothos, kind of yeah, grows like yeah. a vine. Just cut a hole through the moss and stick the stem in the water under the false bottom. And that plant has such a large bore root, it's fantastic at absorbing the nitrates. And in a frog tank where you're kind of flushing, you know, the waste through the moss, the plant takes off. And another plant, um, the purple wondering Jew, I think is the common name, makes a gorgeous tank. It looks like it's intentionally planted, but really it's just the pothos and the wandering Jew just going crazy in, a, in an environment that they love throw a bromeliad in there and it's like hey you know what i might be ready to tackle that living wall mm-hmm. and now let's say so you know thank you very much for kind of breaking down
0: the, the your experience with poison poison dart frog mm-hmm. and a good like beginner setup and some you know hard learned lessons to yeah. be successful uh what if somebody listening to this is like you know what I, I think i do want to get into poison dart frogs what would be like one good resource online that you would say
1: check out this website um, check out this group yeah to get first more of all you know you've got to go to youtube it's the second largest search engine on the planet, and you're going to find lots of information there. And I would also say kind of write down a few of the the most burning questions you have. I don't understand this part. And search in particular for that part. And you'll I think you'll come up pretty quickly with some best practices. And also, um, larger zoos and national collections are a good resource. They may not be able to get back to you very quickly, but if you want... Good information, you can, you can contact via email, usually from their website, the National Collection, National Aquarium, National Zoo, things of that nature. They'll give you some feedback. I know even in Tennessee, I think the Tennessee Aquarium now has a poison dart frog display. And not that they're indigenous, but it's a wonderful contrast of environments. Yeah, 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 no, very cool. All right, and so you know, to kind of
0: wrap this up, you know, thank you very much again for coming on and sacrificing some of your aquatic experience time. Glad you know, you're do. not you're not from New Jersey, so you flew out <laughs> here, but you're sacrificing some time to talk to me, um, and you know, through this medium to the audience and share that wonderful wisdom. Uh, you know, how can people find out more about you? Um, you know, let us give me you know a, a minute or two on your
1: channel, and sure. we'll make sure we've got show links in the notes uh, for people. Well, thank you very much, Randy. That's very generous. And as you can tell, I'm still a naturalist, a generalist. So I dig keeping fish. I love bird watching, uh, fishing. I like to fish as a hobby. And so I did this YouTube channel kind of from the perspective of of a nature appreciator and it's called River Life. I live on the river there in Tennessee and just wonderful, you know, to have coffee on the porch and see a bald eagle a bald eagle fly down the river, you know, or catch a fish. and The otters swim by, and then uh, you can see a fish breaking water. We have trout and bass and carp. So the content that I wanted to share with people is the content that makes me happy. I feel like it's a quality of, of life enrichment. So I wanted to capture that and share it with others. And it's, this isn't new to me. You know. I, since I was a kid, this has been a truth and we refer to each other as nerds, you are just so like-minded. These people really get it and appreciate it. But I I think many people, it could be an invitation. Hey, why don't you check out some nature appreciation? Oh, you know what, I really like that fish keeping. So uh, I wanted the River Life to not only be an expression, but I also wanted it to be an invitation. So very happy to invite all of your listeners over to the River Life YouTube channel. Uh, it 's a small channel it's it 's a new channel i 've got about seven hundred and forty subs and all of a sudden it 's important to me to reach a thousand subs <laughs> i don 't know what that drive is, but this is a milestone that other creators say yeah if that 's the toughest part. if you can hang in there and just do your content, pull your time till you get a thousand subs, then you can just focus more on the content instead of kind of making a place for yourself at the table yeah and you
0: know I, I i liked sharing the background you know and having you talk about the poison dart frogs and your experience of the hobbits so that my listeners know that you know you've got you've got street cred right you've got mm. some serious chops and i'm an old and, guy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're an old soul. I <laughs> mean, uh, yeah. So you know, you you are somebody that they can uh, look to and have some really good, knowledgeable um, information, and in then it comes from somebody with a lot of experience. So, mm-hmm. um, to me, that's very very important in terms of when I promote somebody that, especially that does you know, video. Type of content. So, uh, again, thank you very much for for coming on the show. Such a (laughs) pleasure. Awesome, man. And so, listeners, we're going to head back to the Aquatic Experience. Um, Fantastic time. I can't, uh, you know, suggest and recommend this enough. Um, So, 2019, uh, make plans. Make plans to get to uh, Secaucus, New Jersey for Aquatic Experience. And I'm going to do my best to to make it two years in a row. So, again, Rack, thank you very much. We'll have links to your YouTube channel in the show notes. And, you know, I am now a less ignorant person about dart frogs than yeah. before we started this conversation. So thank you very much, sir. I appreciate it. And Let's go find you some dart frogs. <laughs> I don't know. The, it's a fish room. I don't know if there's any. I've, it, it's all planned out, man. I don't know if there's room for a dart frog in there or not. But maybe, hey, maybe one day, though. They, they're they cool, man. They're, they're cool. You're they're cool, cool, Randy. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you again for listening to the Aquarius Podcast. As always, get involved in your local fish club, help grow this wonderful hobby, and have fun with other fish nerds.